That is my cat riding shotgun in the bottom left half corner of the photo. He's just sleeping in his litter box. <laughs> Calm little guy. You know, cats are, they generally hate being in cars. And so for, for me, when I put my cat Simba in a cat carrier, he gets very distressed and he just does that yowly meow over and over again. But if I just like sort of let him be out, it's a little kind of dangerous, I don't know. But like 95% of the time, he just lays down in there and goes to sleep. And that's what he did. So that's us riding along. He's a great little travel companion. Now he's in Cincinnati. So he's our Cincinnati. <laughs> the 9 a.m. didn't get that. That just came out of my mouth right now. And a man. Sporting the Mercy shirt, by the way. Covered in cat hair at that point. But Cincinnati's named for... A uh, noble Roman citizen, Cincinnatus. I don't know if any of you know the story of Cincinnatus. When Rome was still a republic, governed by the Senate, so before the Caesars had taken over and made it a sort of a dictatorship, you know, em empire with an emperor. Um, when Rome went through challenging times, uh, they would appoint a individual and give that individual dictatorship-level power to deal with the issue at hand. You know, everything in Rome at those times needed to be run on the same tracks. Decisions needed to made be made quickly. So they would find somebody and give them full power and authority over the workings of Rome, over the military and the army, and they would say, deliver us from out of this threat. You know, the challenge there that ended up ultimately backfiring is you get a dictator that uh, doesn't want to give the power back, you know, and then you've got the line of the Caesars. But Cincinnatus, uh, at least once, maybe twice. It's uh, a little bit difficult to know because he, he's so noble that he's become a bit of a legend. But at least once, maybe twice, was just an, a noble citizen working on his farm, plowing the fields. Senators show up and say, hey, we need help. And he says, okay, I'm going to take on power. And they, they, they flush him with full authority of the entire state of Rome, the power of the Roman state. And both times, he took this power and used it for just long enough to deal with the problem and then handed it back over immediately and went back to his farm. I mean, you know, when you, uh, when you think of like Lord Acton's quote, right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Or uh, Abraham Lincoln once said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, everybody goes through adversity, but if you want to know somebody's character, give them power, right? When you think of those sorts of quotes, for Cincinnatus to twice have the full power of the Roman state at his fingertips to hand that power back over and return to the life of a farmer is truly remarkable. And as a result, uh, places, you know, name themselves after him, Cincinnati. It's interesting, you know, given these reflections on power that the New Testament encourages God's people to seek spirit power actively encourages God's people to seek spirit power, uh, especially Luke Acts, but other places in the New Testament paint a picture that events of the power of the spirit go part and parcel with the proclamation and demonstration of the kingdom of God. And it's just interesting thinking about that in light of some of these other things with power that power can be a bit of a dangerous game. And so as God's people, we do sort of seek the power of the spirit to live the life that God has called us to live. And at the same time, there's an entire book of the Bible that in some ways, not in every way, it's got a lot of purposes, but one of the purposes that this book of the Bible serves is to show how inadequate it is to seek only spirit power 
divorced from Christ-like character and from the other fruits of the Spirit. And that book is the book of Judges. Maybe some of you have encountered some of the stories from the book of Judges. You know, maybe Gideon or Samson, right? They made it up on the flannel graphs, you know, of the kids' room. What, however many used flannel graphs were used. Um, one story that doesn't generally make it into the Sunday school curriculum is the story of Jephthah in Judges chapter 11. And Jephthah is a wounded, flawed individual who is anointed with the power of the Spirit to deliver God's people uh, and leaves a trail of devastation in his wake. As we encounter the story of Jephthah, we're going to encounter a tragic uh, and remarkable little girl who pays an incredibly high cost for Jephthah's rashness. And as we encounter her part of the story, we're walking into one of the most challenging and devastating parts of the scriptures. And so we approach her story today with nothing less than fear and trembling and deep respect and remembrance for the price that she paid. We're in a sermon series this summer called The Summer of the Spirits. And today we're going to think about seeking spirit power in ways that are wise and humble and sacrificial. I've titled today's sermon, Seeking the Spirit for More Than Power. Will you pray with me? Lord, we need you. We invite you here. I just confess right off the bat that while we're going to talk today about seeking the Spirit for more than power, that God, we need your power. We do need your power. And we need your power to make everything that's going to happen in the next 60 minutes uh, to go according to the way that you would have it go. So Lord, uh, I lift that up to you, God, and ask that your power would be here. I ask that you would anoint me in the name of Jesus to preach and teach your word. I ask that you would anoint all of us here to have our hearts and our ears and our eyes opened for what you're saying, God, and that you would speak to us and that we would receive it. We ask for all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our reading today is out of Judges chapter 11, verses 1 to 40. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites. You will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? 
The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and he repeated all his words before the Lord at Mitzvah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against me that you have attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king saying, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, Give us permission to go through your country, but the king of Edom, Edom would not listen. They also sent to the king of Moab and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next they traveled the wilderness, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, let us pass through your country to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his troops and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and the whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not give what your God Chemosh gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Aror, and the surrounding settlements and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them in that time? I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message that Jephthah sent him. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mitzpah and Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Minnit as far as abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you have promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. 
After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. The book of Judges follows a cyclical, sick, <laughs> now, now the word's out of my head. Cyclical, is that it? I think that's it. Cyclical pattern. At the end of Joshua, God's people have taken the promised land, the land that God gave to them, and there's a sort of mountaintop moment where Joshua goes in front of the people and says, okay, now you're in the, in the lands, but now the hard part comes. Choose for yourselves this day who you will serve whether the gods from your fathers way, way, way back where they came from or the gods of your neighbors. But as for me and my house, Joshua said, we will serve the Lord. And for the rest of Joshua's generation, there's sort of the spiritual authority and blessing that's on that and they're relatively faithful. Immediately when we enter into the book of Judges, they're totally apostate and idolatrous. The next generation has totally lost it. And so Judges runs through this cycle that's repeated over and over again where the people are idolatrous. They worship other gods. They, they forget the God who, who brought them out of Egypt and loved them and, and brought them to himself. And then as they're idolatrous to the other gods, they fall into political and military oppression of their neighbors. And once that happens, they cry out to God and say, God, deliver us. And God raises up a judge, raises up a deliverer, puts the power of his spirit on that judge and delivers his people out from oppression. And Judges just does this over and over and over again. Just read it. Starting like Judges chapter three with Othniel and read, you know, you don't even need to read two chapters before you realize that this is just happening over and over again. The thing, however is that the book of Judges is not just sort of a two-dimensional cycle, it's a three-dimensional spiral downward, where this pattern is repeated over and over again, but it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So at the beginning of the book, these stories are sort of short. It's just like, and God's people were idolatrous, and they were oppressed, and God raised up a judge, and he delivered them. And it's like, okay, that's happening. By the middle of the book, the narratives are getting longer because the cracks in the foundation of God's people and the deep brokenness and woundedness of their leaders is just starting to wreak havoc. And so you get to uh, Gideon and Jephthah and Samson who are deeply flawed people and they just continue to lead Israel down this spiral of, of disintegration, moral and spiritual disintegration. And Jephthah's story, which you already know ends with a horrific act, is only in the middle of the book. There are 25 chapters in Judges. We're not even halfway there. By the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, God's people are tearing themselves apart. They're absolutely destroying themselves. They're they're not able to take some of the land that God gave them, so they they went north of what God had given them and slaughtered an innocent people and took their land. By the the end of the book of Judges, they're at complete moral and spiritual disintegration. And And the book at the end starts to get this refrain that judges what's happening in the book of Judges. And the refrain is, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. That without, without a king, without someone who's, who's effectively marrying spirit power with spirit character, with godly character, without the marriage of those things, everyone is just doing, that. we have spiritual moral anarchy and God's people are just utterly falling apart. Everyone did as he saw fit. In those days, there was no king. 
In Judges chapter 10 and 11, we in some ways just have a paradigmatic example of that. We're halfway down the slope of sort of slippery judges' badness. Israel has been idolatrous. They're oppressed this time by the Philistines and the Ammonites. They cry out to God. And interestingly, this is not the first time that God has delivered them. So God uh, responds kind of interestingly in, verse, uh, in chapter 10, verse 14. God replies to them and says, cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. sort of a cheeky reply from the Lord. He's like, hey, it's not like you don't have gods. You do. You spend all your time worshiping them. How about you ask them if they'll save you? We're fortunate that God doesn't reply to us like that all the time. But Israel does truly turn back in this moment, even though they lose it immediately later in the book. We'll come back to their reply later. And so Yahweh relents. Their God relents and delivers them. And in Judges, Yahweh delivers according to a twofold pattern. A human vessel filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Those two things put together is the mechanism by which God over and over again delivers his people. And so we're going to examine those in the book of Judges, those two sides of this coin. The human vessel in this story, in Judges chapter 11, is Jephthah, an imperfect vessel. There are sort of three titles that I've drawn up that can, we can assign to Jephthah that can help us understand who he is as a person. The first one is Jephthah the wounded. Jephthah the wounded. Jephthah is an illegitimate son. He's the son of a prostitute. He's the son of uh, probably a random sexual encounter that his dad had with a prostitute. And as a result of that, his siblings hate him because they don't share the same mom. And so Jephthah, in a complete and utter act of compassionless uh, sibling infighting, is driven out of the home of his family and driven out of his land. He's, He's completely lost his identity. He's been ripped out from his family. He's been driven out of Gilead scoundrels and ruffians, other people who have been uh, similarly disinherited and been called illegitimate have gathered together and they have their little illegitimate band, people who have been named as despicable and cast-outable. Jephthah the wounded. Can you imagine the pain that Jephthah must be carrying? Can you imagine the wounds that he's experienced at the hands of his siblings? Jephthah the wounded. The second title, however, is Jephthah the Proud. Notice what Jephthah's concern is when the elders of Gilead come to get him. He says, will you really make me your leader? You know, not, not like, hey, how are things going under this military and political oppression? And, and how has it affected the family? And how is this person or that person? It's just, how do I know for sure that you're going to make me the leader? And it's really understandable that Jephthah would think this way, right? Because he's been called illegitimate by his family. And now all of a sudden, he has the opportunity to become the most legitimate person in Gilead. He has an opportunity, if he's able to succeed and win this battle, to become the only person who matters, head of his father's house, which he was cruelly sent away from. So it's reasonable to to understand why as he's acting out of his woundedness, that would be his chief concern. How do I know that I'm not just going to do this for you and you're going to cast me out again, but that I'm going to lead you? Notice also what Jephthah says, this is wild, in Judges 11.15, that letter that he sent to the king of the Amorites It starts with the words in verse 15, 
And the NIV obscures this a little bit. It says, this is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take back the land of Moab. But if we were to just render this woodenly, it would say, thus says Jephthah. Now, every other time in the Bible, when you see the words, thus says, what's going to come next? The Lord. And here, the audacity. We have, thus says Jephthah. Wow. I mean, just incredible to take that formula and say, thus says me. This is what I say. You know, the text doesn't actually ever say that God raised up Jephthah to be a judge. Almost every other case in the book of Judges, it says, you know, Israel's being oppressed and they cry out and then the text says, and God raised up for them a judge. That, that language is absent in this narrative. The elders of Gilead were just like, there's a warrior, let's go bring him back. I, I mean, there's, there's very little language here about the activity of God being governing for Jephthah in any way in what he's doing. Jephthah the proud. Finally, Jephthah the selfish. Jephthah the wounded, Jephthah the proud, Jephthah the selfish. Listen again to the language of Jephthah's vow. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Some people in the telling of this story sort of think that Jephthah is sort of saying, whatever I see first when I come back, you know, I'll... I'll sacrifice that. And so maybe he's wandering through the fields and, oh, you know, he thinks he's going to see, you know, an animal or something, like a bull or a, a dove. Or, but, but the language of the vow is, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me. What sorts of things can come out of the door of your house to meet you? Maybe, maybe a really devoted pet. Maybe, right? But ancient Israelites, they didn't keep dogs as pets. They thought they were dirty animals. So what is Jephthah talking about here? He's talking about a person. And he's gathered to himself, uh, right, a band of ruffians. They've all got their families and their people and probably people who work for them, who are in their employ, maybe the head of the servants of his house. And Jephthah here is, is the language of his vow would lead us to believe that what he's saying here is, some low-level person's gonna walk out of the door of my house to welcome me when I come back, and whoever does, I will offer them to you as a sacrifice if you give me what I want. Jephthah's woundedness is so deep, the opportunity for him to become legitimate after once being called illegitimate, the woundedness goes so deep for him that he is willing to explicitly sacrifice the life of another person on the altar of meeting my needs. Jephthah the selfish. Now look, what do we begin to take away from this? God uses imperfect vessels to accomplish his purposes. He just does. And there's a good side and a bad side to this in the book of Judges. <laughs> Thought my water bottle was on the floor, but it snuck away from me. How could you? <laughs> the good side is that your wounds do not disqualify you.
from being used by God. Many parts of who we are are simply the products of wounds that we've collected from other people. We're just rolling down the hill of life, picking up wounds as we go. Some of them self-inflicted, if we're honest. Your woundedness does not disqualify you from being used by God, even in those places and those woundedness that are just not dressed and cleaned up yet. Jephthah's wounds are just gaping. They're just all over him, and God still uses him. It's very easy for us to sort of think, God, I don't have it all together, and I, I, I just, I'm, I'm a broken instrument. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guitar, and the strings are snapped off. I'm a violin without a bow. I'm a hammer without a head. I'm a, I'm a drill without a bit. So I, I'm just no good. I'm just useless. You know, the Lord is, the Lord is like uh, a handyman that you would not want to work on your house. That's what the Lord is like. You know, you, something springs a leak in your house and the handyman shows up and you're like, it's really urgent. Let me, you know, get in here. And he's like, oh, I will in a second. You know, oh, I'll, okay, give me, I'm on my way. And then, they, and then they get in there and they're like, you know, you show them the problem and they wander off to somewhere else. And then you like see them open their toolbox and it's like full of rusted nails and stripped screws. And it's just, it's all Allen wrenches. It's like 50 Allen wrenches that are all the same size. You know, he's got like a plastic hammer that's taken from like the pre-K room in the back, right? And, and you look at this and you go, I think you have no idea what you're doing. You know, and the Lord in those moments, I think, may reply to us, you know, maybe it's you that just has no idea what I'm up to. The Lord gets to see the big picture of things. It's not ours to see the big picture. It's not ours to know all the time what God is doing and why. It's ours to know that God is trustworthy and that God is capable to use any of the things that we give him, the ways in which we're that plastic hammer or that rusted nail or, or whatever it is and say, Lord, you can use me. Your wounds don't disqualify you. But the other side of this coin that God uses in perfect vessels to accomplish his purposes is that wounded people wound people. Jephthah's proud speech and selfish vow reveal that whatever's going on for Jephthah, it kind of stopped being about God a long time ago. It's about him. Jephthah's about himself. And Jephthah is playing out his woundedness, right? He's just cast out from his family and he's willing to do anything and hurt anyone in order to get his needs met. The book of Judges, again, has a profoundly negative view of this cycle, right? The, the judges are not models of leadership. You're not supposed to read the book of Judges and go, I want to be like that guy. Except Deborah, maybe. Except Deborah, you can look at Deborah and, and uh, think that she's a good model. But other than that, the book of Judges, it, it, it still teaches a message, but by showing all these anti-heroes. The book of Judges is painfully crying out and, and begging for someone to come along who is full of the spirits and is full of godly character and is full of humility and sacrificial leadership. And so with the book of Judges, we confess that spirit power is great, but we don't want to be people that are just full of power and then who knows where that power is going and how we're wielding it and who we're hurting. 
We cry out for Jesus to lead us and also for Jesus to shape us into leaders of our families, our small groups, our peers, after the manner of Jesus who are anointed with the Spirit, both in power and the fruits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Jephthah is dying and other people are dying for want of just a little bit of self-control. If he were anointed with the Spirit to receive self-control, his daughter might still be alive. We want to be people who wield spirit power in wise and humble and healthy ways. Jephthah, an imperfect vessel. The other side of this is the Holy Spirit, God's power to deliver. Setting free and delivering is part and parcel of the identity of the Spirit. Let's look at Romans 8, 1 and 2 really quickly. should be up on the screens. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin of death. That word there, law, the law, the instruction, the normative pattern, the thing that when you experience the Spirit, you experience it consistently over and over again. The Spirit of life is the setting free from sin and death. And this is on display in Judges chapter 11. Israel is delivered out by the Spirit from military and political impression. And realize all of the things that the Spirit delivers in spite of. The Spirit delivers in spite of Israel's continued cycles of unfaithfulness. The Spirit delivers in spite of Jephthah's own selfishness and pride. The Spirit delivers in spite of ongoing unhealed patterns of woundedness in Jephthah's own life. Because the Spirit loves to deliver. It's part of who the Spirit is. The Spirit doesn't wait for you to have it all together. The Spirit doesn't wait for your attitudes and your motivations to be perfect. The Spirit doesn't wait for you to stop hurting other people. The Spirit is simply waiting for you to cry out to God like the Israelites did and say, I need to be saved and only you can do it. I need to be saved and only you can do it. Look at the Israelites' reply. This is the one moment where they really get it right. Judges chapter 10, verses 15 to 16. God says, You want me to save you? Go cry out to your own gods. And Israel replies, but the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord and he could bear their misery no longer. This is a model of true turning back to God. When we lay down all our machinations and all our agendas and all our plans and other places we would go to get our needs met, when we lay them all down and have no guarantee that God is just gonna fix things right away, but we lay them down anyways and say, God, I'm turning back to you, right? That's what's incredible about Israel's doing here. They have no guarantee that God's gonna act on their behalf, but they put everything away anyways and turn back to him. That's when you know that you've totally turned back to the Lord. Because we keep in our back pocket sort of all our contingency plans A to Z, all the things that we're gonna do and all the things we're gonna try and all the ways in which we're gonna manipulate things to, and and we think that repentance is like putting away the first 23 plans but keeping our X, Y, and Z plans just the last couple of things. And, And true turning back to the Lord is, God, you have it all. You have it all and I need you and I'm not moving until you move. When we come to the Holy Spirit in that way, the Holy Spirit is powerful to joyously deliver you when we truly return to the Lord. You know, also, some of us have been delivered from things and then we've sort of gone back, right? Like Israel and the cycle of judges. We kind of, we really do have some real moments of turning around and then we find ourselves right back where we were. And 
there's a part of that. As much as when we're delivered out of something, we want to leave that behind and not go back to Egypt, like the Old Testament would say. There is a, a pattern of human following after Jesus where the real challenge is the constantly getting back up and crying out to God. And if there's any of you here today who feel sort of religious guilt or shame because you know that God has met you before and you found yourself back at that place where you didn't want to be, in the name of Jesus, I just break the power of shame and guilt over you that would keep you from crying out to the Lord again. Cry out to him again. Cry out to him again. And then cry out to him again. And then cry out to him again. And cry out to him one more time. And then cry out again. And you don't ever need to feel guilt or shame when you come back and cry out to the Lord. The final character that we're going to look at, Jephthah, our imperfect vessel, the Holy Spirit who loves to deliver. Unfortunately, in this story, we have a third character, Jephthah's daughter, who is the cost of deliverance. Jephthah's rash vow introduces human cycles of deliverance into this story. When God delivers, God takes on the cost of deliverance on himself. That's the joy and the glory of the gospel of the God revealed in Jesus, is that God took on the cost of delivering humanity that was far, far away. But in this story, Jephthah's vow creates a human casualty of deliverance. And this is what happens with human cycles of deliverance, that one person's justice is another person's oppression, one group's win is another group's loss. Breaking the cycle of win-lose justice is a work of God, and that's what Jesus does. He takes it all on himself so that the cycle can end. And in that, Jephthah's daughter is one of the most profound pictures of Christ in the Hebrew scriptures. Notice all the things that she does that are remarkably similar to Jesus' own path to the cross. She submits to her father out of a zeal for God. She submits to her father and says, you've made a vow to God, let this thing be done to me. She goes into the garden and returns. Jesus goes into the garden of Gethsemane and has this moment where he wrestles out whether or not he's gonna return and walk the way to the cross. And Jephthah's daughter goes into the wilderness for two months and yet still returns. She walks her own Via Dolorosa back to her own bitter ending. She allows her father to do what he vowed. Did you catch that language in the text? It doesn't say what Jephthah actually did. It says, and he did what he vowed. The text is so ashamed that this, is, that this needs to be recorded, that a judge who's anointed with the Spirit would do something like this. It can't even speak out loud what happens. It's like the text is staring down at the floor, sheepishly and ashamedly telling you what happened to Jephthah's daughter. As his only child, his only child, she allows Jephthah to do what he vowed as the price of deliverance won. She also prefigures Mary in her posture and actions towards God. Mary's heart is revealed in her posture when, he, when she says, let it be done unto me. And so Jephthah's daughter prefigures almost the entirety of God's redemptive act in herself. Now, Jephthah's daughter is unnamed in the story. Jephthah's daughter. 
Biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble makes the point that she's unnamed in this story for a specific reason, namely that she's so completely hemmed in by the actions of her father. This story's all about him and working out his own sin and pain that she becomes unnamed as she participates in it. What's her name? I don't know. She's just the daughter that Jephthah poured his sin out on. And so she loses her name. Tribble notes that she loses her name. But really powerfully, Tribble points out that shockingly, this nameless daughter of Jephthah is remembered. Did you notice three times at the end of the text it talk about the tragedy that she was dying never having been married? Right, as a woman in Israel at this time, to become a mother of Israel, to have children and to run your household would have been a deeply satisfying identity both in the present, but then also into the future where you live on and your memory is lived on. There, there's a whole future here that is shattered and destroyed that the text explicitly calls out. The future of Jephthah's daughter is, is cruelly and bitterly ripped away. But, surprise of surprises, the nameless, childless daughter of Jephthah is remembered. Did you know at the end of the text at verse 40, from this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadites. Because the God of the scriptures is the God who remembers the nameless person. The God of the scriptures is the God who sees you. When your life, when you're unnamed by the fact that your life is taken over by the sin of somebody else, by a family member that's out of control, by, by life circumstances that are too brutal and painful, by ways in which society has, has forced you onto the underside of unjust situations, that in those places when your name is robbed from you and ripped from you, the Lord of the scriptures is the Lord that says, right in your experience of being unnamed, you are not lost, you are remembered. And we could preach another sermon where we'll talk about how God gives everybody true names in the new heavens and the new earth, but let's just sit right here in the moments of being remembered in the place of being unnamed. Being remembered in the place where your identity is ripped from you because it's all about somebody else. Being remembered in precisely those spots that God sees you as a nameless person and says, I remember you, I see you. I remember you, I see you. That's the God of the Bible. The story of Jephthah's daughter is a tragic and powerful testimony that even the unnamed are remembered by the God of the scriptures. To conclude, some final thoughts on seeking the spirit for more than power. We've looked at Jephthah the wounded, we've looked at Jephthah the proud, we've looked at Jephthah the selfish. Here at the end, let's look at him one more time as Jephthah the pitiable. The person who's so wounded that they can't help but visiting upon themselves their own sin. Notice how Jephthah's called illegitimate and cut off from his line by his siblings and then in killing his only child, he aborts his own line. No one will remember Jephthah. No one will live to tell his story. He just visits his own wounds back upon himself. I think it's important that at this last moment we think about Jephthah with pity because as we grow in our ability to see Jephthah as someone who's pitiable, we grow in our ability to be compassionate with ourselves. That God looks at us in ways that are full of compassion and pity, even in the places when we do the most awful things. (sighs) 
the Spirit. Seeking the Spirit for more than power. We want to seek the Spirit not just for power to do God's exciting work, but for all of the fruits, including sanctification, repentance, confession, to become more like Jesus in every area of our lives, whether they think they are for God or not. Setting down this idea that there are only certain parts of our life that the Spirit sort of works in. You know, there are these parts of our life that... We just have, you know, we're, we're just influenced by the things that we see when we think of greatness. And so we think, I want God to work in the areas of my life that are going to be geared towards greatness. <laughs> greatness, not greatness. But, but like, you know, think of some area in your life that's not sexy. Think of some area in your life that you would never Instagram. Like, let the Lord come in and let the Holy Spirit start working right there. Like, the most important steps in the road of following after Jesus come precisely in the places that you would never Instagram. So start there. Don't start with the places that you feel great about or you feel like, wow, God could really use me for this. Start in a place where you think, man, I hope that nobody ever finds that out about me. (laughs) Start there. When we do that, it helps put us in a posture to seek the Spirit more for just the fireworks of Spirit ministry and for the real long-haul project of becoming shaped into what you were born to be, yourself made into the image of Jesus. Finally, Jephthah's daughter. We follow Jephthah's daughter in becoming nameless servants of God. We give up our desires and our dreams and our futures to carry our cross and follow Jesus. I was talking to some friends a couple weeks ago and they were haranguing me for being a bit of a Disney curmudgeon. You know, I like Disney. I'm not ruining anyone's life here. My sister who is in the audience is a Disney nut. Um, God bless Disney. But you know, I'm, I'm just, it's like eating too much sugar or something. I'm just getting sick in my spirit of being told over and over again that life is about making all my dreams come true? I mean, right, right, part of it is, right? Especially for people who come from backgrounds or situations where, like, fulfilling their dreams and desires and passions is not an option for them, right? And so to to watch that happen is, is fantastic. But there's so much about the message of life is about making your dreams come true that is so far from the cross of Christ, it's so far from following the Jesus who, who walked and let his body be hung on an instrument of torture and death. It's just that when, when, when we're, and look, Jephthah's daughter has no opportunity to receive the Disney message. Some people choose the cruciform path and for some people life deals them a hand where the cruciform path is thrust on them. And when we constantly take in this message over and over again of life is about me to get my needs met and my desire filled and my dreams met on my timeline and my plan, we send Jephthah's daughter out to the wilderness to be out there by herself. We leave her to walk the walk of the path of Christ alone. We will not do that. We will not be subdued and hypnotized into thinking that life is just all about making my needs met on my timeline. And and no, we will walk the road with the daughters of Jephthah and there are gonna be daughters of Jephthah throughout the world across time until the Lord comes back. And we will not send her out to the wilderness to be by herself. In the final analysis, we confess both that with the book of Judges, what happened to Jephthah's daughter is disgusting and despicable and wrong and tragic that somebody who is anointed with the power of the Spirit could do such a horrible thing. And with the New Testament, we also confess that in Jesus, God has done something that reveals in choices, like the one that Jephthah's daughter made, something profound about God's work and truth in the world, and that God is able to work the greatest goods through such costly sacrifices 
and that in the body of this little girl, the whole story of God's work in the world was prefigured. And that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will join with kings and queens, presidents and senators, CEOs and celebrities, models and influencers in humbling ourselves to honor this little girl whose greatness has surpassed any of ours, dressing her wounds with our tears and praising Jesus that he has restored to her the life and the name that were robbed from her in this world. And thanking the Holy Spirit who is powerful to deliver her out of death and namelessness.